Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. And in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Scott Peters on the podcast. Dr. Peters is an Associate Professor of Educational Foundations and the Richard and Veronica Teller Endowed Faculty Fellow of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, where he teaches courses on measurement and assessment, research methodology, and gifted education. His research focuses on educational assessment, gifted and talented student identification, disproportionality within K-12 education, and educational policy. He is the first author of Beyond Gifted Education, Designing and Implementing Advanced Academic Programs and Services, from Purpose to Implementation, and the co-author, along with Jonathan Plucker, of Excellent Gaps in Education, Expanding Opportunities for Talented Students, published by Harvard Education Press. So great to chat with you today, Scott. It's my pleasure. I didn't know you were going to read all that. It sounds uh, it sounds a lot fancier when you say it than, uh, than in reality, but it's wonderful no, to be here. No, it's, it's very, uh, <laughs> it's rightly fancy. You've done a lot. You've done a lot for this field. You have an awesome first name. And I look forward to chatting with you today about all that, except your first name. Yes, we'll probably restrain ourselves on that. Yeah. So you've been rethinking gifted education. You've been working in the field of gifted education. Did you start out in this field rethinking it? How did you start off? It's actually funny because I have to answer that question saying no, because there's this kind of famous book chapter by a guy named Jim Borland from Columbia University in New York. And I think the title of the chapter is something along the lines of gifted education without gifted children. And I can remember reading that chapter early on in my graduate training and just hating it. 
and mm. just thinking it was a ridiculous proposition and that it was overly simplistic and all these things. And now I think of Jim Borland as probably one of the most forward thinking individuals who was unappreciated in his time. And every time I read his work, I'm just, it's so in line with my own thinking. And so I have to completely confess that no, at first I was very much not of the mind that I am now. And uh, a lot of it just came from trying to have to rationalize some of the things we do to K-12 practitioners, to school district personnel and parents. And that became harder to do under the typical paradigm. And so that's kind of what led me to thinking, okay, what makes this more internally defensible? Like what makes our field more internally consistent and logical within the goals of education more broadly? And that's kind of what led me to saying, are we really doing this right? Are we really communicating it right? Are we on the right foundation? Good. I really, really like that. I like how it kind of emerged. This and you didn't like start off with the agenda. Because a lot of people, look, let's be honest, a lot of people in this field have started off with an agenda. And the longer they've been promoting an agenda, the harder it is for them to, it's like there are a lot of activists in the field, not necessarily scientists. Is that a fair statement? It's true. Matt Makel, a good colleague of mine from Duke University, describes it as a field that has both research and advocacy goals. And I think that's a challenge in education or any kind of social field is you have people that are in it to do advocacy, but then are also kind of doing science sometimes. And sometimes those can work together where advocacy can utilize science and, you know, scientific foundational knowledge to do advocacy, but they're not necessarily the same thing. When I do a study on gifted education, I'm not doing it to show that gifted education is important and good. I'm doing it to ask a question. And if that question or the answer tells me that, no, you know, this gifted service is a bad idea or this is not working or it wasn't effective, I'm fine with that because my goal first and foremost is science. And that has definitely um, gotten me in trouble with some people in the field before. For just as an exa- a real quick example, I did a study on whether or not teacher training in gifted education, something I you know, do in part for a living, has any effect on teacher practices in the classroom. And the answer is basically no. Huh. And self-reported practices in the classroom, I should say. Uh, And obviously that wasn't popular. You know, people don't want to hear that, but the data kind of just are what they are. So, no, I think you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people that are very much in the field for advocacy because they are true believers. Well, now, that that is very interesting because the field does need advocates. Absolutely. Or else it won't sustain itself. I mean, if the field only consisted of the scientists who are publishing papers, there's not going to be any translation. So there needs to be a good communication between the scientists and advocates. Maybe a a criticism is that there has been a bifurcation between them. And I think that would be a reasonable criticism. Would you have that criticism at all? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, by the way. No, it's it's a couple of really good points. First and foremost, that scientists need to be better communicators. I mean, I think this is a big topic in the world of kind of psychology right now in general. You know, this is something I think you especially have been really effective at, if I can put in a plug, is communicating, you know, science to a broader kind of lay audience. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, hardcore scientists are not always adept at that. It's not easy. So, no, I do think it it needs advocates. This is kind of maybe a larger, broader issue, though, of sometimes the uh, desire for advocacy to give the field a reason for being can get in the way of good science and can bias, you know, scientific findings. And so I do think there's definitely a relationship between those two, but there does need to be, um, you know, there is also kind of sometimes when they need to be, when they need to be separate. But no, I think in part of the topic I think of today is the need to advocate for 
students who are not average or however you want to call them typical who are appropriately challenged by grade level content those students very much do need to be advocated for kind of all science aside yeah so there is this advocate part of you as well then oh absolutely i mean that's kind of how to get back to your original question how i got interested in the field i got interested in it because of the absurdity of the idea of just teaching people based on how old they are like okay so it's you are seven welcome to third grade you must need to learn multiplication that's so arbitrary like to this day it frustrates me the idea that i don't know anything about you but because you are in third grade i'm going to teach you this on tuesday like the disconnect between student readiness between disconnect of interest and what we actually teach them that disconnect bothers me for all kids not just above average kids or advanced kids it bothers me for everybody. You know, that's my interest is how to align those things better. And that absolutely, that argument is not a, you know, I guess it's a scientific argument, but it's very much an advocacy belief. So I do yeah. kind of wear that hat as well. Yeah, it sounds like you're I'm trying to think how to phrase this. You'd probably be happy with an education system, and this might be going too far ahead, but an education system where we didn't need the phrase gifted children, but that simply like, well, there's nothing simple about it, but that took that goal that you just said, like you just said, you just gave a very worthy goal and you said what the problem is and you pinpointed it. You pinpointed precisely the problem. It seems like you're saying maybe that's the problem. The problem isn't that we aren't finding more quote gifted children necessarily, but the problem is what you just stated, which didn't need the word. You didn't say the word gifted at all really in that, that whole right. problem. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you hit on the nail on the head exactly, which is, and I've said this before, which is in the world of, you know, perfectly differentiated educational experiences, you know, now we tend to call that the term is personalized learning. In that world, we wouldn't need to have all these labels to then, you know, confer or just act as catalysts for specialized services. So if every single kid had to some degree a differentiated and inherently and automatically and perfectly differentiated learning experience, we wouldn't need to label kids as learning disabled or as gifted or whatever, because the service that they are provided would be targeted to them already. Like we could bypass the step of identification and go straight to meeting the kids where they are. That's the ideal, you know, unrealistic perhaps, but that's the ideal world. And that's a lot of times what I argue for in the field of gifted ed is to get past this idea of gifted and to even suggest that maybe the idea of gifted is a barrier to the goal of challenging more kids. And that's not necessarily a view that is widely shared uh, in the field. Why do you think it's not widely? Do you think that some people have certain agendas that go beyond, or no, I shouldn't say agenda because that kind of paints them in a nefarious light. And I don't mean to do that, but they have a different assessment of the need, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that is in conflict with what you see as the fundamental need. I think that is a good way of putting it. The way some colleagues and I tried to articulate it was that there's kind of two wings to the field. There's probably more than two, but we just kind of articulated it this way. There's this group that is interested in high ability psychology. You know, they're interested in the brains of, you know, Nobel Peace or not Nobel Peace Prize, but like, you know, huge award winners, you know, people that find cures for cancer and famous artists, they want to know what makes them tick and how they see the world differently and their motivational trajectories, you know, the psychology of really, you know, profound brilliance 
and that's a very interesting field. Mm -hmm. Then there's this wing of the field that I'm more in, which is more interested in how do we challenge everybody tomorrow? Mm. Like, how do we make sure everybody is in their zone of proximal development as often as possible while in school? And there is some overlap. Like there are some kids who perceive the world differently, who also need more math on Thursday morning, but those aren't the same group of kids. Hmm. There are kids that are truly brilliant. You know, they can almost see numbers, like they just think differently. And some of those kids need more language arts class and some of them need, you know, remediation. It's, I just don't see them as the same group of people. And I think the field has for a very long time tried to pretend that they are the same. Mm -hmm. Um, and so some of the people that really disagree with my perspective um, are more of the high ability psychology folks. You know, they're much more interested in, you know, again, the overexcitabilities, the unique social emotional needs of certain kids. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's not as much my focus. Gotcha. Do you think that there's a place room at the table for people with all these different focuses to come together and have their own advocacy for it? I think there is. I think, in all honesty, I think the important thing is just to be honest when we're talking about school based services or out, out of non school based services. Yeah. If we're talking about identifying gifted kids for the purpose of receiving some kind of advanced intervention in school, that's one purpose. If we're talking about identifying gifted people so that we can, you know, better understand how they came up with all these patents and made these incredible inventions. It's just a different purpose. So I think we can have the conversation together. It's just, and I say whenever I work with teachers or anybody else that I am interested in identifying kids for gifted services in school. I'm not interested in gifted adults. I mean, again, it's not that it's a bad thing to study. I'm just not interested in that. I'm not focused on that. I'm not interested in, you know, gifted musicians it's just not my focus area. Gotcha. Um, so it's worth it's worthy of study. My I'm just kind of like a subset, I guess you might say, of the larger field. Yeah, and so let's talk about some of these these ideas you put forward in your rethinking a gift education book. You do ask the question identification for what. So it sounds like this does dovetail with um what we're talking about. You know, in the sense that like we should be explicit about the for what part, right? Yes, and and that's um. One of the things that is amazing to me is how rarely people that run gifted programs can articulate why those programs exist. Mm. You know, I'll ask a gifted coordinator or a, you know, an advocate uh, or even a GT parent and say, well, why does, you know, the Madison School District have a gifted ed program? And their answer will usually be, oh, well, it's to serve the gifted or to meet the needs of the gifted. And I say, oh, well, I don't know what that means. Like, what does that mean? And so... I like to see a much more explicit, you know, purpose to the services to say, you know, we have program X, Y, or Z to provide for kids for whom existing services are not enough. So we've got this program in place for those kids who, for whatever reason, have already exhausted other services. So it's very much a kind of response to intervention or levels of service kind of a kind of a model. But I do think that's been a problem like for advocates in gifted ed is the inability to articulate why the services are important. Just saying because there are gifted people is not a very convincing argument for a congressman or a school board member. Does that mean there are ungifted people? See, that's another problem with the term. Ugh. Isn't there a book with that title? <laughs> I know, but I try um, to keep myself out of the podcast when I talk. With no, I, yeah. I think it, that hits on one of the problems with the term. Yeah. And some people claim, well, no matter what you call it, it's going to take on a bad label. And I disagree with that. I think the fact that it's called gifted 
Like the term was something else, you know. High ability, in need of acceleration, people. Right. I mean, if you called it that, that does not have, it's not even an issue of denotate, it's or connotation. It's a literal denotative meaning of the term gifted. Right. It makes it seem like it's been, you know, bestowed, that it's permanent, that it's a trait of your being, and that you have it and somebody else doesn't. Yeah. And that's just, that entire denotation is such a barrier to what the advocates of the field are trying to accomplish because it turns people off. I have to have like a 30 minute conversation with someone about what I mean by gifted before I can get to the actual work of the field. That's like the definition of a barrier. Like I don't want to spend my time on that. So I agree. I think the term is bad and it makes it seem like there are these special people and then there's everyone else. And I don't think that's correct or helpful. Yeah. I have yet to, Quite honestly, I've yet to hear one convincing logical argument for why that label is good. And almost every argument I've seen, it seems to be like there's this group of gift education educators that follow the Terman kind of spirit of gifted education. Terman was very much about there are these special children that where that's the only line that genius is recruited. And a lot of the Terman kind of, in my reading of his work, it has a very uh, eugenics feel to it. It has this mm-hmm. like this kind of. It's hard to like articulate, but it's like I get a certain spidey sense when I listen to like <laughs> certain people talk sure. that I don't get here get when other people talk, and I, sure. I just don't know what it is. I've been trying to articulate what that spidey sense is, but there are some people who talk about quote their gifted educators in a way that it's like goes way way beyond. It seems like go like far far beyond just like. You know, I have students who are that are ready for grade level. No, it's like something completely different, a different plane of existence. It's like they're like the spiritual angels yep. that God put on earth. So they really do believe that in a sense. And so, yes, yeah, so do you see something similar? I very much see something similar. And again, I think that's what makes it so hard for kind of advocacy within the field because you can't go in front of a congressman or in front of a school board and say, well, there are these special people that are more special than the other students, and they've been endowed with some kind of special talents, and therefore regular school is bad for them, and they deserve more. That's just such a non-convincing argument. Hmm. But if, instead, if you can argue, well, Bobby has mastered pre-algebra, so we think he should get algebra. Like, that's such a no one would disagree with that. Like this, the kind of much more, you know, what, what I've described as kind of the advanced academics framework of these kids need X because they've mastered Y is a very simple and compelling and unobjectional argument. If you say these kids need X because they are gifted, then first of all, you have to explain what that means. All the And you also have all the baggage comes with it. You have these people that have these preconceived notions of what it means. They might know term and work and they've got a bad association with that. It just doesn't, not only do I argue the term doesn't facilitate the goals of the field, I actually think it is an active barrier to yeah. the goals of the field. Yeah. So I think that is uh, what you describe is very much uh, something I experience. And I think it gets a little bit at a trait versus state kind of distinction yeah. for those that are more psychological. Or essential, essentialism, I think. The, uh, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You know, well, we definitely bonded over that. I mean, you reached out to me after my book came out, and then I read your book, and I was like, wow, we're independently on similar, uh, whatever the wavelength is. is It's not the exact same wavelength. There's a genus of wavelength, at least, that we're on together. So I definitely uh, appreciate some of your arguments. And 
the phrase, the idea of of gifted children, and I, I'm belaboring this point because I do think it's important. There's been something about it that has bothered me at a, another level that I don't think I've ever been able to fully articulate. I, I didn't do so in Ungifted, but maybe I'll be able to at some point in this conversation today. <laughs> um, sure. I understand. I've been there. Yeah, it's tough. There's like something else. There's something. It's like it's a tautology in a sense. And let me try to understand. I put that out there and then let me try to see if I can explain what I mean by that at all. It's like, you know, there is no Ten Commandments. There's no, God never gave Moses a tablet that said, these are the characteristics of the gifted children. So what I'm saying is there's no objective. Sometimes it's treated as though that is some sort of like ordained thing that like, you know, oh, but that's not a gifted child. But then isn't it possible to say, well, you're the one that defined <laughs> that <laughs> what gifted a, a gifted child means. So, okay, help me with this point because I do you see, you see what I'm trying to get at? It feels yeah. like a tautology in a sense, like you're gifted because you're gifted. It seems like a logical fallacy to me. There is a lot of that. And there is, you know, if you were to bring an alien to the planet, and that person, you know, that alien were to ask this question, you know, like, well, talk to me about what it means to be gifted. You know, they get a lot of typical responses like, okay, you know, is high achieving or has high ability of some kind. And so right. the alien might say, okay, so so all gifted kids are high achieving. Like, well, no, no, not necessarily. It's like, okay, well, so what are they all? It's like, well, some are this, but not all, and some are this, but not all. And eventually the definition becomes so vague and abstract Again, I'll drop Matt Makel's name again, because he and my colleague Matt McBee did this study where they took the National Association for Gifted Children's definition, like what they say is giftedness, and they tried to operationalize it. So they actually put it into what criteria might look like. And when they apply that, you start ending up with the majority of humans being gifted mm -hmm, yeah, in yeah. some way or another, and which is somewhat strange given kind of just about any gifted ad advocate would say, well, of course not everybody's gifted. At the same time, their definition says that the majority of people are gifted. It's a really problematic area for services because the definition is so vague. It's different across yeah. state lines. There's no mandated services. The terms are implemented differently. And again, that's why I prefer a much more concrete term, you know, like a kid who needs X, Y, or Z rather than a gifted kid. I just I don't think it's very instructionally helpful or yeah in the assessment world we use the term diagnostic efficacy mm. so how effective is an assessment or a data point in telling me what you need today in my class and if i walk up to a teacher and say this kid is gifted so go forth and take care of that the teacher is going to have no idea what to do because the term just doesn't carry any information special education terms are a little bit better but they're still a little problematic, but gifted is really problematic. It is problematic. So, well, it seems like the NAGC, the spirit of it, and, and your point is very well taken, but it seems like everyone's talking about inclusivity these days. Mm -hmm. You know, that's at least on the left. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very, left, yep. a very yes. left buzzword. Now, there is a large part of your work that does involve inclusivity because we can, let's like merge your excellent gaps in education book with the discussion we're having already because it seems sure. so part and parcel of this conversation. So you do want to include groups that have perhaps been left out of the table, like minority groups, those who have traditionally been underrepresented in gift education and perhaps have been, not perhaps, but I think historically have been overrepresented in special education, the yes. other side. 
So there's this big part of you that wants inclusivity in that direction. How do you reconcile that form of inclusivity from your criticism of the ability form of inclusivity that it seems like, you know, like letting everyone in that shows above average ability in anything in the world? It's a tough question yeah, I'm asking a, you. I know, but I, it, it yeah. is. It's a that's a high it's level a question. Yeah, I have a question. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, it's also something I, I wrote this article. I think it came out in 2016. You know, one of those like excellence and, and equity kind of articles in Gifted Child Quarterly, talking about how do you have both? You know, how do you have excellence, which I was kind of thinking of as services that challenge the kids who need something more you know kind of the traditional purpose of gifted ed to challenge the under challenged while at the same time having greater equity which is really kind of what you're asking is how do you challenge advanced kids who are already advanced while at the same time not just having a service population that's we'll just call them very traditionally high income very privileged kind of kids they tend to be caucasian they tend to be certain age yeah. groups right yeah. Right. It's, you know, um, this is, I've written a paper on this where I analyzed Office of Civil Rights data, you know, and show the most recent data about how underrepresented certain groups are and how overrepresented others are compared to the population. We're doing a study right now to look at if you were to change the norm group, mm. you know, to look at school norms versus national norms, how would that change who gets identified as gifted? So it really is a, it's, it's a hard thing. It's a great question. The way I've, and I, I don't have like a singular answer, but the way I've been thinking about it lately is that the field really does need to have kind of two parallel goals. There really does need to be kind of a talent development goal. And there also needs to be kind of a, I guess I would call it more of an advanced academic goal. And so the talent development goal is really about providing advanced learning opportunities to kids that couldn't access them via their own resources. So, you know, a simple example is, you know, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and high quality early childhood education experiences here in Madison cost $16,000 a year. So if you want your kid to be in high quality three-year-old pre-kindergarten, it's going to cost you on average $16,000 a year. There's no way a low-income family can afford that. So if we want to actually put a dent in the gap between the population served in gifted programs or the excellence gap, if we actually want to mitigate that, we have to start by backfilling some of those missed opportunities, some of those opportunity gaps. So things like very early on, you know, providing greater access to early childhood education. There's a program out of Northwestern called Project Excite, where a colleague of mine went into third grade classrooms to identify students for a kind of a gifted education boot camp to prepare them for high school AP classes. So they were starting in third grade. Like you really do have to go way back and start providing those advanced opportunities early if you wanna close those gaps in the long term. That's kind of the talent development side. But then there also needs to be the services in place for the kids who just need something right now. So regardless of why a kid needs it, whether it's because you know both her parents were physics professors or whatever, the kid needs more math right now. Let's not debate why. Let's just focus on what the kids needs right here and right now. And those are different. Those are very different programs. Those are very different services. They have different service populations, but they're both necessary if we care about both goals, if we care about challenging everyone who's under-challenged and about mitigating those disparities, because otherwise you can't. There's no way to kind of fix the disparity argument in gifted ed by just like getting a different test or something. I mean, that's not, 
Hmm. It, it exists because of larger societal inequality, not because of, you know, solely, um, we're always using the wrong test or something. So hmm. I think it's kind of a two-pronged a- approach that follows along with two parallel goals that the field should have. But again, I'm not speaking for like the, the field. This is just kind of how I've started to think about it. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, this is there's an age-old dilemma between equity versus excellence. And I don't know if that's exactly right. exactly what you're talking about, but this is really, really interesting, Scott. So you're saying perhaps we could have one form of like let's not call it gift education right now. Let's call it enrich. <laughs> how about we call it enrichment education? Sure. You know, one aspect where everyone in that school gets enriched beyond, you know, according to their readiness. And then there, that seems like the equity. And then the, there, there could be another form of education, talent development, or whatever, where the explicit goal is like, if someone wants to be eminent or great at something someday, you know, like because that would require a whole different set of things, like coaches and. Like, sure. I mean, if we're talking music or whatever, I mean, it's not going to serve them to just stick them in a gift education class and do math problems. Um, that has to be highly custom tailored, right? Yes. And the question of what domains should we serve in terms of talent in schools is kind of one that I always just run from hmm. and claim total ignorance and say that's sure. outside of my control. Like, you know, I believe we should have music in schools. I believe we should have art in schools, but I'm also not going to go there and say like, you know, we should have gifted welding programs in schools. Like that's just a whole different conversation. But no, I think I agree with you completely that there should really, like let's presume for a second that a school district wants to close excellence gaps. They want to close the disparities in what students access AP classes, what students go to college and all those things. If they really want to do that, you know, in a place like Madison, where, where I live, you know, they have like 34 elementary schools. Some of those elementary schools are almost 100% low income kids, 100% minority kids. If the district really wants to put a dent in excellence gaps, they should be citing extra gifted programs in those schools, mm-hmm. you know, programs to help those kids develop the kinds of critical thinking skills that a lot more privileged kids have been able, fortunate enough to develop because of outside opportunities. Mm. So Jonathan and I call it front-loading, where we're kind of front-loading those skills early Jonathan Plucker for our listeners. Plucker. Yes. Yes, my apologies. Not, I, am, I get them confused because I have two Jonathans that I work with. Yeah. Um, we describe it as front-loading opportunities early on in school so that come the advanced opportunities later, those kids are actually ready. And so if we actually want to put a dent in the disparities in gifted ed enrollment or in AP enrollment or college attendance or whatever we need to be putting more kind of talent development programs in low income, lower performing schools, not less. I mean, it's, it's the opposite of what people tend to think about gifted ed. And then, yes, we should also have those other things you talked about with regard to eminence. Um, and, and yes, that's, that's certainly true, but I also just think of it in terms of, well, look, we got a, you know, roughly 2% of the America's fifth graders are four or more years advanced in math. So that's fifth graders that need high school material in terms of math. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about those kids too. Like they might not go on to be a theoretical physicist, but they just need geometry now. Sure. That's the other side of the equation. We've got the talent development on one side and then kind of the advanced services to meet that kids need right now. Yeah. That's kind of the two pronged approach that is at least currently knocking around my brain. Accelerate because you do in your gift education book talk about uh, acceleration versus enrichment. Right. You kind of make that distinction a little bit. Yes. As two potential, you know, programming tools. 
And so, yeah, when you said, let's not call it gifted, you know, I agree. We're talking about just different levels and types of services for all students. Yeah. I mean, every student is somewhere on this continuum in terms of what they're receiving. Cool. So you might have some kids who are just, you know, just, you know, they're just kind of receiving an enriched learning experience right now. Whereas some kids, what they need is to be accelerated three years. You know, it, it depends on where they are and what they need. But yes, there's a, it's kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. In the ideal world, everybody has some kind of personalized learning experience. What we're talking about now is just kind of a midway point on that continuum. Cool. And there's one particular question that you ask in your Rethinking Gift Education book that provides a really nice segue to your excellent GAPS book, and that is, what happens when addressing underrepresentation is the goal of gift education? Now, this is a very thorny question, potentially very controversial as well, right? It is. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I work in the fields of assessment and gifted ed and disproportionality in gifted ed. So literally every part of my field is a thorny issue or a controversial topic, which is delightful for me. This <laughs> means I never have the answers. You know, there's no clear answers. It, it is. I mean, we have decided that disproportionality is bad. And I guess for your listeners, you know, disproportionality is kind of the unequal rates at which different student groups participate in gifted ed or AP or whatever. Right now we're talking about gifted ed. So just as a background, African-American and Hispanic students participate in gifted programs at only about 60%, as is their participation in the general school population. So they're underrepresented by about 40%. And then white students are just slightly overrepresented, about 15%, and Asian students are almost twice as represented. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about underrepresentation. And if mitigating that is the goal or is a goal, then that kind of authorizes us to take more proactive steps. I mean, as you said, there's no 11th commandment that says equity shall be within gifted education. I mean, that's just a choice. I'm not saying it's a good choice or a bad choice. I'm just saying it's a choice. And if it is a choice, then I've really spent a lot of time decide or working on methods to kind of accomplish that. So if you want better representation of African-Americans in gifted programs, what are the levers you could push in terms of policy? And what are the levers? Well, oh, I mean, the the lowest hanging fruit, I suppose there's two low hanging fruit. The first one is to get rid of um, what Matt McBee and I called two phase identification systems. And so, you know, you and I work in universities, so we're probably pretty familiar with this, but Applying to a university is basically a two-phase placement system because the first phase is you being encouraged to apply and then seeking out and taking the ACT or the SAT or something like that. Like For the most part, we don't universally screen the entire American high school population for college eligibility. And because of that, we miss people. Typically in gifted ed in K-12, the number one time that kids are evaluated for gifted services is following a teacher or parent referral. And just think about which students are going to be referred. It's going to be students who are of the dominant cultural group, students who are, you know, like me, they're loud, white, Caucasian males that have a certain personality type that are individually driven, that kind of stuff. And that's going to exacerbate disproportionality. So the simplest thing that could be done is instead of having kind of that that two-phase system where you've got to jump over one hurdle before you get evaluated with the next, is to just evaluate everybody. So take all, all your second graders and put them through the process. 
that's going to miss the fewest amount of students. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you evaluate everyone, you're going to miss the fewest amounts of students. And this is exactly why a lot of states have gone to universal ACT administration for college, because you miss the fewest students. It's the exact same uh, concept for K-12 gifted ed. And then the other low-hanging fruit is to use building norms. So traditionally in gifted ed, you know, there's giftedness criteria of a 130 IQ or the top 2% or the top 5%. And that's compared to a national norm. And that gives us this hugely unequal demographic. If instead we went to building norms where gifted is not operationalized as the top 5% of the country, but is instead operationalized as the top 5% in every school building, you would see a roughly 200 to 300% increase in the number of African-American or Hispanic students identified. Wow, and that's something I I could talk all day about, but well, it, it has to do that. with you know, enrollment. Well, I get it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but I mean, you have a whole chapter in your book about it. Yeah, that is great. And I for the listener, I mean, it's just the simple principle that taking account local norms, taking account you know who are the people around you in your school system as opposed to the national averages, and you know you make that very convincing point in your book that so that that was one thing that really stuck out to me. When I read it, another thing that really stuck out to me when I read your book was in the, some states, the drastic disconnect between the identification and the actual intervention or what happens after the identification. And I keep saying the statistic, and I may be, my memory might be bad from your book, but I recall you saying that in Connecticut or somewhere, like almost 100% of the money goes towards identification. There was some state, I think it was Connecticut or something, but, like, but hardly any money goes towards actual programming. What was it? Yes. Well, there, we, we do cite, well, the one state that's jumping out in my head is, is Minnesota okay. because they, because Minnesota mandates identification, but they don't mandate services. Yeah. And there are other states that do that as well. There's only a couple. I can't think of them off the top of my head. So there are states that mandate identification, but not services. So of course, what do the districts do? Well, they spend the money on identification. And maybe if they just happen to have lots of money laying around, they have services. But then I also know of districts here in Wisconsin that once spent all the money they had for gifted ed on a single test and then didn't have anything left over. So the sole point of identification was to identify there was no service, which is which is ludicrous mm. from, from my perspective. But yeah, I mean, the nice thing about local norms is that a lot of the, as I said earlier, the levers to address disproportionality can also harm the other goal. Like I mentioned those two goals, like challenging the under-challenged and also better equity. A lot of the levers that address equity can actually harm the other goal. Hmm. Because think about it, if we wanted perfectly equitable gifted populations, we could just select kids at random, you know, just randomly choose kids from the school population. And you're going to have a gifted population that's perfectly representative of the school. Hmm. But that's silly. Like that wouldn't make sense. We're not doing a psychology experiment. Yeah. Right. Right. We're not, we wouldn't be identifying the kids that need a service. We're just identifying kids for, I don't know, some purpose. But the nice part about local norms is it satisfies both goals. It would get us better equity, and we'd be identifying the kids who are the most likely to be under-challenged in their particular educational setting. Yeah. So the kids who are the most advanced in their building are the ones who are most likely under-challenged yeah. in their particular... We don't care how you compare, you know, if you're in Boston to how... You know, it doesn't matter how you compare to kids in New Mexico. What matters is how you are compared to like your local curriculum, to what's being provided in school. And that's why the local comparison is just much more intelligent. I mean, I, 
I am so over the whole concept of national norms. As I was talking about earlier about diagnostic efficacy, a national norm just tells me so little in terms of what you need as a student. Like, great, you're at the 97th and a half percentile. You know, what should I teach you tomorrow? It just tells me nothing. Whereas if I know you're in the top 2% of fifth graders at my middle school, like, okay, at least now I know that you're probably, you know, one of the students that's most likely under challenge compared to the regular curriculum. It's not a slam dunk. We don't know that for sure, but it's like a, a decent indicator. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I mean, you, you sold me on that already. <laughs> I'm sold. Um, so, you know, you and Jonathan put forward a plan for addressing excellence gaps in your more recent book, which is a little bit of a different than, than the plan of beyond gift education. So could you please address this specific plan that you think is the most reasonable way of addressing this? And also, I want you to address, like, do you envision a realistic goal someday of, like, 100% complete, excellent gap reduction? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, it's a similar question when people ask me about the whole equity in gifted populations. Like, do I expect perfect equity? Like, should that be the goal? And I always try to be clear when I'm answering and say there's a difference between should it be the goal and is it like a reasonable expectation? Like, yes, I would love it. My, you know, view of the world is a place where whether or not, you know, you live below the poverty line or are from an African-American family or an English language learner is not relevant to your educational opportunities, to your rate of achievement, that is my preferred world. So yes, in a preferred world, we wouldn't see things like excellence gaps or disparities in gifted enrollment or the, or the like. In the U.S. especially, and in, in most kind of industrialized countries, but the U.S. has the dubious honor of being really bad in this regard, income and family education is very closely tied to access. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., you get more access if you can afford it. You get more opportunities if you can afford it. And because of that, you know, eliminating excellence gaps, eliminating gifted disproportionality is, is not going to happen anytime soon. It's easier to eliminate the gifted identification disparity than it is to eliminate excellence gaps. Excellence gaps are getting worse. Well, define, worse define excellence time. gaps. Define it. Sure. So the excellence gaps are just the disparities and rates of advanced achievement on any metric. So most typically, you know, Jonathan Plucker and I look at NAEP scores, so the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and you can look at the rates at which uh, students on free and reduced lunch score advanced in, say, fourth grade science, eighth okay. grade math, if they're low income or non-low income, and there's, you know, there's a gap. And, you know, the rates of advanced achievement have been going up, you know, since the 90s, but also in the 90s, the rates were zero for some groups. Mm. Even right now, they're still zero for some groups. So like, I think the, you know, a good example is the science area, you know, science gets kind of a short shrift a lot of the time, but you know, only something like 1% of eighth graders score advanced in science total. So it's hard to have a gap, but the gaps have been closing for things like for, uh, sorry, have, like achievement gaps have been narrowing a little bit over the, over time, excellence gaps have not. So the visual I can paint you and, you know, I, I can actually send you pictures of this or graphs of this, but. The visual I can paint you is picture from like, say, 1990s through now, through 2017, was the most recent NAEP data point. 
the rate of advanced achievement in reading and in math for, for low-income students, for African Americans, for Hispanic students has been growing. It's been get you know slowly a couple points over that time, but that's been vastly outpaced by the growth among higher-income white and Asian students. So just a huge differential in terms of uh, the gap. So. Whereas before, maybe the gap was only a couple percentage points because there were zero low-income students scoring advanced compared to 3% of higher-income students. Now it might be 2% versus 15%. So that gap is widening, mostly because the growth among privileged groups is outpacing the growth among less privileged groups. What's a privileged group? What do you mean by privileged? Well, you know, I hate these terminology because you have to use shorthand, but it's bad. Usually when we're talking about excellence gaps or disproportionality, the underrepresented or underprivileged group or the um, the groups that have fewer educational opportunities are low-income students, so students from experiencing poverty. Okay, so you mean educational After- opportunities. Yes. Like, yes, are but- you privileged just by definition by the fact that you're, like, overrepresented in gift education? Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make you privileged? No. Right. What I would – no, not at all. What I, um, I would also actually challenge something I just said as well, which is – we in the field of you know equity kind of people that are interested in equity tend to refer to caucasian asian and non free and reduced lunch kids as if they are privileged in some way which really is not fair i mean there's lots of underprivileged white kids there's in wisconsin where i'm from there's lots of first generation immigrant asian students who are not at all advantaged you know so it's very much advantage. So you mean advantaged? Yeah, good. No, right. I think it's really good to define terms when we talk about this stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. These are really problematic, you know, ordinal categories. These are not discrete groups, but of course we treat them as if they're discrete, as if you know all African Americans the same or all low income kids are the same. And of course that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of research about how bad of a proxy free and reduced lunch status is for you know, access and income, but mm-hmm. it's basically all we have. So we end up relying on it, sure. on it a lot. But yeah, there's um, a couple of great reports about excellence gaps. If people want to see these charts about how, about how worse they've gotten over time. Thank you. So just uh, let's conclude. Can you just give me your, uh, just simply your plan for addressing it? No big deal. Oh, just my simple, my simple five point yeah. plan is yeah. guaranteed <laughs> to solve all problems. And, um, can you summarize uh, the basic gist? Gosh, not really. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, how can we direct yeah. the reader? Like, leave the listener with uh, something. You know, I think the, the the biggest thing is that we need to start thinking about actually mitigating advanced performance disparities as as important of a goal as mitigating minimal proficiency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for for fifty years, the U.S. has been concerned about mitigating minimal achievement gaps, and we've devoted all these resources to it. But we always seem to forget about the kids that are already at minimal proficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why aren't we concerned about low-income kids scoring advanced? Why do we only have minimal expectations for them? Like, that's a pretty, Very you know, point. unethical thing. So policies and after-school enrichment programs in low, you know, overall, quote, low-performing schools where there's, you know, lots of minority students, like, those kids need to have advanced services, too. And both from a policy standpoint for, like, accountability and also for the from the standpoint of where do we cite programs that needs to become more of a priority. And that's a lot of what um, you know, we talk about Whoa. in the book as our model addresses. Sounds like you gotta, so. I gotta catch a train. So I just yeah, wanna I say, uh, Scott, I wanna say uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today and um, raising so many important issues and kind of being at the forefront of these issues as well. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. I appreciate you having me. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.